Welcome to the DFO Rundown Podcast with Frank Saravalli and Jason Greger on dailyfaceoff.com. Delivered by DoorDash. Welcome to episode 155 of the DFO Rundown. I'm Jason Greger alongside Frank Saravalli. Frank, how was your weekend? It was good. Training camp week. Let's go. Yes, uh, the rookie tournaments are on and uh, training camp, uh, the medicals on Wednesday, teams will be on the ice on Thursday. And uh, the big story over the weekend, well, there's two of them. Uh, one, of course, Blake Wheeler is no longer the captain in Winnipeg and uh, good timing for us because uh, Rick Bonus, the head coach of the Jets was booked. Uh, he'll be our guest today on the pod. So uh, we'll get to up close and personal with the head coach uh, on the Jets and you know where a team goes. I think that's a team that really felt like they underachieved last year. So uh, now they come in, uh, there'll be some changes there. And then Frank, you also had um, the story about Evander Kane and the settlement with the San Jose Sharks. Um, there's no cap penalty for the Sharks. It's retroactive. Kane gets a, a one lump sum payment and now we move on. What uh, Were you surprised by this outcome or is this what you expected? Not surprised by the outcome because this is sort of along the lines of what they had been talking for the last number of months in that the the Oilers were trying to structure their contract with Evander Kane going back to right before free agency based on the idea of making him whole for whatever he would settle with the Sharks. They just weren't able to make it happen in time in terms of a settlement. And they basically decided then, okay, we're going to sign this deal and we're thinking that there's going to be some kind of settlement that comes. We don't know what it'll look like, but in, they kind of did it in the reverse order. Instead of working with the Oilers and the Sharks to, to hammer it all out in June or July, they signed with the Oilers and then went back and the Sharks essentially said, okay, well, let's figure out what the difference is here and we'll try and make you whole based on the dollars that you're owed. What is surprising is that this is an unprecedented settlement in terms of how this is structured on the San Jose Sharks cap. There is zero cap penalty. Evander Kane, we believe, is getting a lump sum payment in the range of $2.5 million. He's going to make $16.5 million in the first three years of his deal with the Oilers. He was owed 19 over the last three years of his deal with the Sharks. The difference there is that $2.5 million and instead of taking that money and dividing it over three years and hitting the Sharks with a cap hit, instead, the settlement calls for that entire $2.5 million penalty to be applied retroactively to the San Jose Sharks cap last season. And so since they ended with $4.97 million in cap space, that penalty just chews up a bit of that unused space that was going to waste anyway. And there's no future consequence for the San Jose Sharks. I can tell you that there's a number of teams around the NHL, Jason, that raised the side eyebrow at that saying, really? Like that's the only penalty that they're going to have here. Why is the NHL okay with this? And the best answer that I can surmise from that is the NHL is okay with it because they deem this to be a satisfactory contract termination based on the details that they were provided last January when the contract was terminated anyway. So the league was on board with the Sharks doing it then. Clearly, they wouldn't want to penalize the Sharks moving forward now for something that they believe they were in their full rights to do. Yeah, which I wonder if that opens Pandora's box because no one really knows what the uh, what the reasoning was and why they did uh, 
why they deemed him that uh, you know you could terminate his contract because it was proven you know there is the him uh, illegally crossing the border well that was proven false so you know it came down to some things that happened uh, you know in the room inside the organization uh, that they didn't like and I just wonder though if if other teams look at this and say hey now you have a precedent for us if we want to terminate a contract now it's different because Kane was playing great that's the thing. I think it would probably raise an eyebrow if you have a player who's a high cap hit and he's not producing. Kane was their leading scorer the year before, right? He was one of their best players. We'll go back to the last high-profile contract termination that was fought back in 2015 with Mike Richards and the LA Kings. The big reason why the Kings ended up with a long-term penalty, Richards is on their cap until 2032. This yeah. year, it's $900,000 is the penalty, which is more than the league minimum player you got to go back to the way that Richards was playing at the time. He had already been sent to the AHL. His game had fallen off of a cliff and they weren't happy with him and wanted to try and find a way to wiggle out of the contract. And now I'm sure that there's all sorts of language in this contract uh, settlement that says that this is not precedent setting, but if you're a team that's sitting there that has a player that's either problematic for you or problematic on your cap, I'd have to think that you're looking at this saying, that's, that's it. That that's all they had to deal with. Let's try it. And in the very worst case scenario, we settle for something that's a lot less than what's currently on our cap. I'd have to be thinking long and hard about that. If I was running a team and I was in a dealing with a contract either with a problem player or someone that's really damaging to my cap. Um, it's not fair. It's not nice, but you know, that's the way things work in business and in the NHL. Yeah, no, uh, I would agree. Now, before we get to more, let's get to Rick bonus, the uh, head coach of the jets. And then, and then we'll figure other things out because that's obviously a huge story. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Our next guest has been behind an NHL bench since 1984. He's the only man actively to have also coached in the 1980s, still spanning a bunch of decades later. And he is now uh, in his second turn as head coach of the Winnipeg Jets, the only man to be head coach in both iterations, Jets 1.0 and 2.0. The DFO Rundown is pleased to welcome Rick Bonus to the podcast. Rick, how are you doing? Doing great, thank you. And just so you know, I know what the league says about 1984. Actually, I came here in November of 1983 as an assistant coach. Uh, I know that's what the NHL record book says. I've been after the, the change, but uh, they fired uh, Tommy Watt in November of 1983. They brought in Barry Long as coach, and I was the player assistant coach in the for the American League team at that point. 28 years old. They asked me to retire and come up and uh, 
and and joined the coaching staff. So I did. So, and here we are. And my first stint here was an 89. That was on an interim basis uh, just to to wipe up the season. So uh, much more comfortable coming in here now in in terms of both those other uh, situations, far more comfortable coming in here this year. That is uh, an important correction, and we'll have to get on hockey TV to, to make those corrections. <laughs> you know who cares about that? Probably nobody. <laughs> no, but I, I think that's great. Like I love that you uh, you pointed it out. So we'll have to get on that. Um, Rick, you mentioned your comfort in coming in this time around with the Winnipeg Jets, um, and it's interesting because last week a little bit of stir, maybe some discomfort created, and and maybe that'll work out well for the Jets in the end. Uh, the announcement made that Blake Wheeler will no longer continue as team captain. Um, can you just let us in on a little bit of, of why you felt like the time was, was right now uh, to make a change with leadership and, and to bring in more people into the leadership group? A couple of reasons for that. First of all, it's, it's, it's changes. Uh, we, we've changed the whole coaching staff. Um, and f- so there's changes there. There's changes to how we do things as opposed to the staff that was here prior to the, to us coming in here. Um, there's going to be changes to the way we play. We want to become a, a little more, more, a lot more aggressive hockey team uh, than what happened here last year. This team is a good hockey team. It just lost its way a little bit. And that happens every sport, every professional team. You have a year, things just don't go your way. Um, so all these changes have been made and right. And, and now is, is a good time to, to take a look at the leadership group of the team and make some changes with that. Um, you have to, they missed the playoffs. So we, we have to make some changes. They can't coaching style, uh, style, um, style of play. I mean, they, you, you, we've got to make as many changes as we can uh, to make sure we, we turn things around here. And, and it, it affects the leadership group. It, Blake's a huge part of the leadership group still just won't have a C or an A. He's the most experienced guy we've had. And don't lose sight of the fact he's still a, he's still a hell of a hockey player and he's, he's bought in, he's accepted this and but again there's time in every organization's growth and we uh, went through it in Dallas recently with Rupe Hints and Miro and those guys that they have to step up and take more responsibility for the product on the ice and what goes on off the ice so what we're trying to do here is just open up that door for those younger guys um, not just younger guys but everyone in that room take more responsibility of of what's going on here. And because ultimately it comes down to the players playing, playing hard, playing together. Um, but the X and O's and all that, they don't work until you get everyone bought into the team culture. And, and we need more guys helping out with that. It can't be on one guy. Blake, every night after a loss here, he's the guy that has to step up and deal with the media and the fans and everything. We want more people to accept that responsibility. Basically, it's it's all in. So that's an all-encompassed answer to your question, but it's not as simple as uh, we just want to change the leadership. There's a lot more involved to it than that. Mm-hmm. Not to downplay anything that Blake might be feeling. I'm sure it's stung. He mentioned that it was a surprise. But do we in the media, you've been around, we mentioned your resume, like do we make too big a deal of, of who's captain and who isn't? Well, you guys have jobs to do. 
So, <laughs> right? We all we all have to work together and in closely and may and make it work. We all have jobs to do. Uh, and I've said this before that some of the best leaders I've coached, some of the best leaders I played with, uh, they never had a CRNA. If you're going to lead, you're going to lead. You shouldn't have to rely on okay, I'm wearing an A or a C. I, I can do this. It, it, leadership comes from the heart. Um, it comes from your passion for the game, it, it, your your love of your teammates, your care of your team. You can't you can't let a letter dictate that passion, that love, that caring. So, do we expect other guys who aren't wearing an A to step up? Absolutely, we do. It's not just going to be on the guys wearing the A's. It's not. We want more guys to step up. So, and we can't let. Sometimes you can hide. Well, I, I can't say that I'm not wearing an A. Well, yeah, you got something to say. You say it, and that's what we're trying to do is open it just get a far more open communication within the room. Rick, uh, you were a head coach in the National Hockey League in the early 90s, and then for 20 years you were an assistant or an associate coach and then uh, returned to a head coach. Do you have that philosophy of you say anything, it doesn't matter? How does that work from being an assistant or an associate coach instead of the head coach, if we want to use like the C or A analogy? Do you just see a comparison there where sometimes when you were the associate or the assistant, you know, you might have to say something that normally the head coach would say? Well, I, I would say, yeah, I did. I, did. I mean, I, fortunately, when I was the, the assistant or the associate, the, the head coaches always gave me the green light. You got something to say, step up there. But I was also working behind the scenes with, with the other players saying, okay, you know, you're not wearing an A, but you know what? You, you, what? My conversations with the players are, are huge. You, you get a lot of feedback. So even in those situations, when I was the assistant or the associate uh, and a player would talk to me, I said, it's important you talk to your teammates about that, not just me. And it's better coming from you than it is coming from me. So I was always encouraged anybody that I coached over the years, if they had something to say that was constructive, that would help the room, that would help the team, regardless if they wore a C or an A, they were encouraged to speak up. And that's how you get more people involved in the room. You, They can't be afraid uh, or hesitant, maybe the phrase too strong. They can't be hesitant um, to speak up when they think they've got something to say. Now, it doesn't mean everyone's always going to agree with it, but it's open for, then you have more discussion and that's what you want. You want the guys talking about it in the room. Rick, in one essence, you're kind of the Gordie Howe of coaching. It's five decades now that uh, you're spanning your uh, your coaching oh, career. And so when you think about like a young Rick bonus, you know, coaching guys in the 80s and then the 90s and the 2000s and, the, and so much has changed overall. How and you have this reputation, I mean, this great players coach. How are you able to still connect with guys when, when you think about it, like, you know, four to five different decades of, of young players coming in and everybody says today's athlete is that much different. You've coached it all. You've experienced it. Is it that much different? And how have you been able to connect with kids? And in some age are, are you know, 45 years younger than you. <laughs> well, when I came here in 83, I was 28 years old. I was younger than some of the players. And now I'm old enough to be their grandfather. So that's, <laughs> that's the reality of it. Uh, when I got into coaching, I, I just remember playing and uh, going to a coach who I wasn't playing much. Give me, you know, what, what can I do? I want to play more, uh, work harder. Well, they, I'm working. That's all I've got is a work ethic. So I said to myself, then, if you ever get into coaching, um, 
communication with your players is absolutely huge for me. I always wanted to have a good rapport with my coach. Uh, and I always said, when I get into coaching, I've got to make sure that those we have those conversations. And sometimes they're all very tough, hard conversations, but you can't be afraid to have them. And so one of the things I've always prided myself in is, is my ability to talk to the players. And yeah, everything has changed. The way we coach, uh, the technology of the way we present things, everything about our game has changed other than the basic fundamentals, the basic principles of how the game should be played have not changed. It's up to the coach to adapt to that. Uh, that line in Moneyball where Brad Pitt's firing or talking to the head scout, they're like adapt or die. And that's kind of, I guess, kind of how I've just survived. But I've always been a big communicator. And I, probably cost me a job or two down the road because that was early like, well, you're, you're too nice or you're too this or you're too that. And first of all, you called me a player's coach. I, I'm not into labels. I'm not into always oh, a defensive coach, player's coach, not a player. I, I just kind of completely ignore all that stuff. You do what you have to do is the way I coach. And you, you, big part of it, you do have to communicate with your players, but more so today. They're, they're very well educated coming into the game uh, in terms of the nutrition and off-ice conditioning and different systems. They're far more educated now than they were 15, 20 years ago, which speaks highly of the coaches that they're playing with as they're coming through minor hockey and junior or college or European, however they get here. Um, so you you have to be able to communicate with them. Um, they've had good coaching. Uh, they want to know why far more now. And, and they want explanations on how the whole thing just kind of ties together. And it, it doesn't, it's up to the coach to be able to relate to the players exactly what you're feeling. So to answer your question, again, I know a lot winded, you have to be able to communicate with every generation that comes up. I've raised three kids right now. So now I'm a grandfather. Um, raising my kids helped me through those, through those generation, talking to them. Um, that helped me. Um, so then you get to the stage in life, man, you just uh, enjoy every day, work with the players every day, talk to them, have some fun with them, get to know them. Love that. Clearly the communication comes easy to you, Rick. Um, you spent the last five years in Dallas, including parts of the last three as head coach, taking the stars to the final there in the bubble in 2020. There was some talk that you might retire uh, last year. What drew you to Winnipeg? Well, I, I had some, the, <laughs> we had some different options. Um, not, not as head coach, but as back to the assistant associate role to come in. I looked at the teams. Um, they were all rebuilding. I'm at the stage of my career where I want to go through a rebuild. Uh, I, I thought the Winnipeg scenario attracted me because it, it is a good hockey club. And Judy and I, were, my wife Judy and I were talking, if we get back into it, we want to make sure we're working with really, really good people. Uh, I've had the fortune of doing that wherever I've been. And this is a great staff. Mark Chipman's a great owner uh, with Chevy and Zinger and, and, and Larry Simmons. Wonderful people to work with. I've been able to hire a great staff and Scott O'Neill, Brad Lauer, Marty Johnson, Wade Flaherty was here. Uh, so I'm surrounded by great people. So from a coaching perspective, you want to come to the rink every day. You want to be surrounded with good people. I am. Uh, I looked at the team. Yeah, they 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 lost their way a little bit last year. Can we come in there and help them get back on track? I I, I guess it was that challenge that that brought me back. And uh, I mean, I even the when I went to Dallas, uh, I only went there on a one year contract. And 
so I said then, well, you know, at the end of this year, we'll reevaluate again. Do we want to keep going here? Uh, and we had a good time in Dallas. So it, it worked out okay. But the the attraction here was the people, uh, the ownership, the, the management, the coaching staff we were able to put together, talking to a lot of the players over the summer. They're good people here. And so when you come, I, I love waking up in the morning. Well, I can't wait to get to the rink. Um, and, and work with these guys, talk to somebody. And I always tell Judy, when I wake up and I look at you and I say, I really don't want to go today, you give me a shot because that's the first sign of retirement right there. We haven't hit that yet. That's awesome. So when you think about the challenge of this Winnipeg team and getting them back on track and into the playoffs, as you're sitting there this summer, you know, thinking about the team, the roster, maybe jotting down whatever you do on on the back of a cocktail napkin, line combinations, or thinking about how this team is going to be a little bit different. What do you see? How did the Jets get there? It would be a beer napkin, not a cocktail napkin. Okay, I don't there you go. What's there. your beer of choice? <laughs> well, you look at the, the core of the team. It's got a great young goaltender and, and Connor Hellebuck. Everything starts there. Co- goaltending is the most important position in sports to me. We, you have a bad goalie. You could play fantastic in front of him. You're going to lose. You have a great goalie. You can have a bad game here. There's going to win the game. So we've got a great young goaltender in, in Connor. We've got a good mobile defense. We've got some great young forwards up front. You know, Shifley, uh, you know, Dubois coming into his own Connor. Uh, so it, it's, it's that and Nicholas Nikolai Ehlers. I mean, they're they're good young players, so we can score. The defense is mobile. Morris is a hell of a player. Pionk, like Dylan, we got good. You got good pieces. That's the attraction. We think, and that's to pull this thing. We can pull this thing back together. We can get it back in the right direction, and and then we'll see what happens. But you have to have the pieces, and we believe we have those pieces. Rick, I've always wanted to ask you this. I love that you clarified the start of your coaching career. In 1991-92, you were the head coach of the Boston Bruins. You guys went to the conference finals. That was the year I think you acquired Adam Oates midway through the season. Then the next year, you're the head coach of the, you know, the, the Ottawa Senators, an expansion team. What happened that summer in, in Boston to, to lead the Bruins to go to Ottawa? Well, yeah, that's a long time ago. I, I know now, but uh, yeah, we're, that was the first time I had been fired, and we there was it was definitely shocking. Um, we thought we had a great year, I, exactly. I, I was think I remember going in to think we we're going to talk about an extension because yeah. I don't had a, a two year contract, and all of a sudden we're walking out the door. Uh, I think a lot of it, you know, I was a different personality that came in there. They Terry O'Reilly was there and a great coach, Mike Milbury was there, a long time Bruins. Everyone knew who they were. Big, tough, physical Bruins, the way the Bruins played for years. I came in and be, uh, really as an unknown, right? I, I was. Um, we had great success. There's no question about it. St. Louis fired Brian Sutter at that point. My understanding um, was that Harry had always, you know, Brian Sutter was a typical the way the Bruins played back then, fight everybody, yeah. be physical. And I think when Brian became available, uh, they, they wanted to bring him in as coach. I, I think it's as simple as that. And again, I was different personality than Mike and Terry. And I was more of a talker, more of a communicator, more of a get the, get feedback from the players, all that. That was different than what was being coached back then. And I, so when I said earlier, that probably cost me some jobs, but that's probably what, there's probably a really good example. 
Okay. Well, the, the, the adage though, the nice guys uh, always finish last isn't true because you've been coaching now for uh, numerous years and, and you've had that, uh, you know, m- maybe more of a positive guy. Now we've seen uh, you like anybody can lose his temper at times. Uh, it doesn't happen often, but uh, when it does, it's, it's kind of, I don't know, maybe it's not funny for you, but we never see, you know, we always see Rick as this really happy, fun, loving guy. And so when we see Rick finally lose it, it's like, do you <laughs> chuckle afterwards? Like, how are you being so patient that you've only had a few blowups as a coach over your time at least public ones i've had a few (laughs) a few more than you realize uh behind closed doors where i like to keep it uh listen passion is passion and uh, i think that the energy and passion has driven me all these years i'm not sitting here saying i'm the smartest coach i'm not i get that but one thing i try to do every day is bring a positive attitude bring energy bring passion uh and keep it under control sometimes it gets a little bit out of control and but that's that's coming from the heart um so there's been a few more blow-ups than you realize uh so it it I, I guess it's just the heat of the moment. And sometimes you get to, you get a little bit too wrapped up as a coach back there. You try not to, but there's times where you feel your bench needs it or your team needs to hear that you're behind them or they need a good boost. And you just got to, uh, you got to let the heart and the passion come out. All right, Rick, let's play a little rapid fire. All right, Rick. Uh, the only rules in rapid fire is you have to answer the question. Okay. okay. <laughs> All right. We'll start with the easy ones. Uh, what is your uh, What's your beer of choice? Bud Light. Ooh, Bud Light. All right. Um, when you were an associate coach, uh, you're a really fun guy. Who is your favorite head coach that you like to prank? Helene. Why? Helene uh, because he and I had a history. I had hired him in Ottawa. Uh, as an assistant and our roles had changed. So uh, I always had a good rapport with Elaine. Thing that impresses you most about Miro Heiskanen's game? That he wants to be out there. He wants the ball. The game's on the line. Miro wants to be on the ice. As an 18-year-old, he came in. And if it was a one-goal lead, he wanted to be on the ice. If we needed a goalie, he wanted to be on the ice. Some guys get nervous and they get out there and they want to be out there for 20, 25 seconds to get off. Miro, you'd have to pull him off the ice. I love the fact that he wants the ball and go with it. So can you sense that in a player early, Rick? And then if guys you feel are taking short shifts, do you talk about them to say, hey, what's what's going on? Yeah, you deal with it right away. I mean, you can see that in players. So you just got to watch them. And you just watch Miro coming in as a rookie. And, man, he wanted to be out there, like, right away. There's a tremendous amount of poise in a player that wants to be out there, a tremendous amount of confidence, and a tremendous amount of will. Miro has all of that. And you can also tell, okay, this guy's – He's a little nervous out there. The shift is shorter. He's cautious and you're sitting back too much. So then you got to deal with that. Like we want you on the ice, but you've got to get a lot more assertive. You got to show you want to be out there. So you, you, it's the player's reaction that you're coaching off. of. Now, Rick, you clarified something. So I want to make sure this is right. In, it, it's listed in 82, 83 with the Sherbrooke Jets that you were the player head coach. Were you in fact the head coach, Reg Dunlop, AKA Rick Bonus? And what was the toughest part of being a head coach and player at the same time? Yes, I was player head coach. Um, it, it just, the, the coach that we were going into Sherbrooke after leaving Tulsa in the Central League, um, 
we were going into Quebec. They had hired Ron Rousset, uh, who was a very popular and accomplished junior coach in the Quebec League. Unfortunately, Ron had a brain tumor removed in July, was unable to start the season. They asked me as the as a captain, kind of kind of older guy, to take over and, and you know be player coach for you know, until Christmas. I said, sure, I can, <laughs> I'll give that a bit. So even take you back a little further, right? one of the last, what was the last player coach contract I signed with John Ferguson Sr. We had a clause in there that he wanted me to get into coaching when my playing days were over. Uh, it came a lot earlier than either one of us uh, expected. But so there was, there was that, we had already initiated that conversation about when I was finished playing, I, I would get into coaching with the organization. It came a lot quicker, but anyway, so they asked me, just do it for till Christmas. Ron will be back at Christmas. And unfortunately, Ron couldn't come back. So I finished the year. Uh, the hard part, uh, I had Ron Wilson on the team. Uh, he was up and down a lot. The hard part was when, okay, and I'd have to tell Ron, okay, Ron, I'm going on the ice now. Make sure these guys are ready to go. And I'd always, I always stood behind the bench. I'd come off the ice and I'd be tired, but I'd stand behind the bench. Uh, and the other, there was one, and in Sherbrooke, so the, in that era, the, the, we our bench was here. The penalty box was right here beside it, yeah. and the other bench was across. So when I get a penalty, I'd be coaching from the penalty box, and I'd be talking to the guys. And the referee came over because the other coach complained. He's yelling and screaming at me. You can't do that. And I said to him, "Well, you show me in the rule book where I can't coach from the penalty box. Right? There's no such rule." So uh, the hard part was that in the penalty box trying to coach, uh, especially when we're on the road and we didn't have the box right beside and just coming off the ice and I didn't play I, I benched myself an awful lot and because you know okay coach going on the power play well I wasn't a power play guy so I never I didn't change that um, so that was the hardest part but it, it was it was a tremendous learning experience Tom Watt was coaching here in Winnipeg at the time uh, and I was on the full team quite a bit and he helped me through it an awful lot. That's taken uh, coaching your kid to a new level, coaching yourself. Uh, I absolutely uh, well, I love it. Hey, I was honest, man. I knew I wasn't that great a player. So <laughs> now, you were a point of game player. I looked up your AHL stats, man. You were a point of game player. And if you weren't a power play guy, then that's pretty good. Oh, God. That'd be pretty bad. Hey, your head coach and you're putting yourself on the first power play unit for a minute and a half. <laughs> Love it. You've co- you've coached a lot. You've been a you know, penalty kill, power play, offense, forwards, defense. What what do you what specialty do you like best? Um, I, I like working with the young D and the young players more than anything. I just like enjoy the the young players. You uh, forward defense. You know, I, I was coaching the defense and all, for a long time in the league, and I, I really enjoyed that uh, running the penalty kill. Um, you just you just you could just build. You had a lot more time just with that smaller group of six, seven, eight defense, and you could build a really strong rapport with all of them. And I enjoyed that. Uh, but I, I've always enjoyed working with young players. And to me, at this stage in my in my career, in my life, like having an impact on them, not just on the ice, but off the ice, helping them grow as a person, as a man, as a husband, uh, that, that that's just as important to me as anything. The impact you can have on these young players and uh, isn't. There's a lot of guys that don't like you, but the guys that you do get along with, you feel you can have an impact on them on and off the ice. That's what kind of motivate, motivates me as well. I don't want to stand like Cup, I don't win a Stanley Cup. It's not the end of the world. When I leave, I'm hoping that I've had an impact on players' lives. 
Oh, it's well said, uh, Rick. That's fantastic. One last one then, uh, so you relate to them. Do you have TikTok, Twitter, or Instagram? None of the above. And have absolutely <laughs> zero. I never look at it, and I tell my kids, don't tell me. I don't want to know anything about it. Because uh, my daughter works in the National Predators. Uh, Ryan is now the Assistant General Manager in Ottawa at the Senators. My daughter-in-law is the Vice President of Sweet and Ticket Sales for the Colorado Avalanche. They can deal with all those things. I don't want to touch any of it. Wow, that's a big family. You guys are covering all the all the divisions. I like it. Uh, yeah, Rick, say we're all in like three of us in one division here. I know, Ryan. Oh, that'll be good. Ryan's Mom's going to – who's she cheering for, though? Your wife. She'll be tough-pressed. It's who she cheering for. 50-50 when we're playing those teams. <laughs> Rick, thanks so much for joining us and uh, continued success in what's been an unbelievable career in the NHL. Appreciate it very much. Always a pleasure, guys. Thank you. Rick Bonus, always a good character, man, as he had quite the career. And, uh, hey, I kind of like it, Frank. He comes in and, hey, I guess you get everybody's attention. Uh, maybe you take some pressure off some people. There's some uncomfortable stuff. Who knows? But, you know, you had said at the end of last season that the, the Jets, there was, I don't know if dysfunction might be too harsh of a word, but there was just a lot going on in that team. And, you know, uh, maybe satisfaction uh, is fair. Yeah, that's fair. So uh, maybe removing, removing the C, maybe take some pressure off Blake Wheeler at the same time. Uh, maybe it forces some other guys to say, Hey, I got to step up here. We got to get everybody pulling the, the boat in the right direction. So uh, I'm, re- I'm more intrigued. The jets were one of the teams. I know you had them as your cup winner last year. Obviously they were disappointing across the league. I'm really kind of curious to see what the change now with, uh, with Rick coming in as the head coach and, and this whole captaincy and what it's going to mean for the jets. I think we probably tend to overrate captains in general. Um, Fair. I would agree on that. I think there's so much focus and pressure put on that player that it's probably unfair. And more often than not, it doesn't mean as much. And not to say there's not honor in the position. Of course there is. It's a nice feather in your cap. And, and Blake Wheeler spoke last week about that exact idea that there was nothing more that he wanted in the league and that, Um, It was something that he took a lot of pride in, but at the same time, we've seen other players be stripped of their captaincy previously. Joe Thornton in San Jose, Dustin Brown, LA. I mean, those guys hung around those teams for a long time after the fact, and the team still achieved success uh, to a relative point after the fact as well. So um, as dramatic as it may seem, it's almost like one of those things where you cut the cord and, things probably go back to somewhat normal. I would imagine that, you know, Blake Wheeler recognizes that it's not exactly the same part of his routine and his Jersey may look a little different to start the year, but I mean, at the end of the day, you you show up and you play, right? Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Now, speaking of showing up and playing, uh, we talked about some, some UFA guys, but there are some interesting RFAs that are property of teams, Frank, that have yet to sign. Uh, let's start with Rasmus Sandin in Toronto. He's a young defenseman. You know, people are high on him. Uh, the Leafs, like a lot of teams, uh, don't have a bunch of cap space. And, you know, RFAs without Arbrights, Frank, it's just... It's one of the rare times where teams can kind of flex their muscles. And uh, I think that's going to happen here. But if if you're a young player like Sandin, I think if you're the Leafs and you're him, you want him in camp on the ice on Thursday. Well, yeah, there's no doubt you'd like to see him continue his push on your blue line. And I think when you look at the way the table was set further this week, like I think heading into the summer, we had a really good idea of, of what, the Rasmus Sandin contract would look like for the Leafs because Timothy Liljegren signed that two-year deal at 
1.4 million a year. And he's coming off of a 23 point season in 61 games. And, and he's a guy that, you know, didn't, wasn't able to really push and crack the lineup for all seven games of that first round series. Sandine uh, right around the same age. Sandine was a first round pick and, and obviously a really talented guy. He played 51 games last year. Um, again, with the injury and, and what he went through, couldn't make it into the lineup in the playoffs. And then you have a, a table setter with uh, Sean Dersey from the LA Kings that signed uh, late last week to, to get himself into camp on time with the Kings. And that's a two-year deal at 1-7. So you have Lil Jagrin, two-year deal at 1-4, Dersey, two-year deal at 1-7. My, my guess is that Sandine comes in right around the same neighborhood as, as, uh, as Lil Jagrin, maybe even a little bit less. Does he split the difference between those two guys? I don't know what leverage he would have in order to get into that category because, um, you know, you look at Sean Dursey and the impact that he had on the Kings really right from Jump Street coming in at a time when they had a ton of injuries in their lineup and was a force for that team and great in the playoffs, uh, really good in that series against the Oilers in the first round. 27 points for Dursey in just 64 games. Like Sandine doesn't have that on his resume. I, I don't think he's reaching that high, but I know the ask has been that high. So it's been higher, I believe, than that. We'll see well, where it me, ends up. I just don't see Sandine having the leverage. Well, really, the, the challenge for the Leafs is, you know, now you look at their roster and Sandine would be kind of what most people assume, one of their top seven defensemen. Mm -hmm. But if you look right now with two goalies, 14 forwards and 60 at 22 million, they're over the cap. So even if you sign him for whatever, 900,000, 950 a million, you know, they're still over. And then they also brought in Zach Aston Reese, a guy that they're very high on, who now he, he could sign a contract, maybe similar cash to guys like Joey Anderson or Adam Godet or Kyle Clifford, and it would just be a change out. One guy goes to the minors, but you know, Toronto, like a few other teams, are are so tight against the cap. I'm I'm curious how they're going to fit him in. I think they could sign him. It's more so how do you fit them in on the roster? Like there's some teams here that are going to have to have some uh, some interesting cap juggling, Frank, leading up to the uh, start of the regular season to get under the cap. And they've still got guys that are they're trying to you know fit in. Zach Aston Reese is another guy that my guest is probably going to win a contract. Um, I do think they've been dealing with a little bit of an injury up front. I think Pierre Engvall has been a little bit banged up this summer and, and may miss a little bit of time. Uh, so that would be one way to, to manage their cap a little bit is if Engvall is out, but it doesn't, all it does is kick the can yeah, down the just road. Delays so, it until he has to come off. Right. But yeah, I mean, I, I guess my thing is, I don't know where Sandine has leverage. And I, I think that's always what you're trying to find in any sort of, contract negotiation is find the leverage point and squeeze it. And I, I just don't know that he's, it's overwhelming in his corner. No. Oh, hundred percent. Very, very few of them have it. Now the one guy who you would think could have some leverage because he's so productive is, is Jason Robertson is now he's a bigger ticket. He's got friend. leverage. Yeah. He's definitely got some leverage. And you know, you, you look at the Dallas stars right now and people would say, well, the stars have a lot of cap space. They got about 6.3 mil. But I think Jason Robertson looks at a lot of these contracts that have been signed and says, hey, I should be in the $8 million range when you look at, you know, Thomas and Kachuk and Norris and all these other players and he's outperformed them. Like all of the all of the precedent says Robertson should be an $8 million player with the recent signings this summer. Yeah, I mean, 
I could see him since he touched 41 goals and nearly 80 points. Like I could see, I could see you making the case if you're his agent and Pat Prasan saying, this is a $9 million player. Yeah. Because we know the too. cap's going up and we know that if he's signing long-term, you don't want to be in a spot where not to say that at 9 million bucks, you're going to be vastly underpaid, but we don't know what the cap's going to look like in four years. 9 million bucks might look like a bargain. If a guy's, you know, who knows what kind of leap he can continue to take in his game. Can he get to a hundred points? I mean, he's still just a young guy at age 23. I think you don't want to leave a lot of money on the table and end up coming back and having the same sort of feelings that um, Nathan McKinnon had not to say he's in the same category, but He's a guy that really took a ginormous leap last year, going from 45 to 79 points. What if he has another push in that vein next two years? And now the one interesting thing about Dallas is Anton Hudobin, Frank, because if, if he's on LTI, that would give them 6.4 in cap plus the 3.3, and that would put them up to, to 9.7. And what I think that on? is the expectation that he okay. is probably not ready to play. Okay, so if he's not ready, then you know the, the Stars do have the money uh, to get it done. And, and when you look at historically, players who hold out, and if it goes long, playing catch-up in the NHL is a very risky proposition, and very few have success. I think f- to benefit the Stars and Robertson, They'd be better off to get now more so the stars, because as we saw with Nylander a few years ago in Toronto, right? Remember he held out, he got his money. And then that rest of that year of his con, the first year of his deal, it wasn't very productive. Now he's lived up to it since then, but trying to play catch up in the NHL, Frank is very difficult, even for good players. I would tend to agree. And I would place probably even more of an emphasis on it for Jason Robertson, because I have no idea what his training has been like since clearly he took a huge leap in his game, but Mike McKenna tells the story and has told it previously on the daily Faceoff show. He was in, um, in Texas in the AHL when Jason Robertson first got assigned there and they had to send him home because he wasn't in proper shape. Um, so, you know, this is a guy that I would imagine you'd want to get in as early as possible. Yeah. And another guy who doesn't get a lot of talk, maybe league wide, Frank, Nicholas Haig, the defenseman in Vegas, he's a really good young defenseman. And you know what? Uh, Vegas is a team that obviously wants to bounce back after a difficult season. They've got some question marks in goal with the injury to Robert Lehner. I look at Still them. in cap jail. Yeah, well, they're in, in cap jail for sure, but they got, they're got they going to have a lot of guys on LTIR, right? And Shea Weber and, and, and Lehner, they're, what is that between the two of them? It's 12. Like, almost, 12. 13, almost 13 mil, right? So I think if, uh, you know, that... That does give him the space, but Haig again doesn't have enough. Uh, doesn't have much negotiating power. I think he has more than you know, even a guy like Sandine for sure. But I think Nick Haig is. I think he's a top four defenseman in Vegas, and they need him in camp. And and he, as a young player, needs to be in there. So he's another guy to watch for. And and Vegas, that whole team, Frank. Like I don't. On paper, they got some talent, but man, they got some question marks in goal. I'm I'm fascinated to see how Vegas does in the first two months of the season. Yeah. So like. How different is Haig than these other guys that we've been talking about in terms of AAV? Like, oh yeah, it's not he's not he's, that much he's be right, power. right, right in that same sort of world. Like you would think that at a certain point, unless the the Golden Knights are trying to you know squeeze out a longer term deal, and they found some success with that. Like think back to the deal that Zach Whitecloud signed six years times two point seven five. They've gotten some guys on some value contracts signed longer term. Keegan Colasar is another one, three times 1.4. 
Um, Nicolas Waugh, they had this summer. He was a high profile RFA. Uh, he signed five times $3 million. So, you know, they've tended to go longer term as part of their structure and, and their, um, the way they'd like to do things. But I don't, you know, I would think with some of those other guys that we just talked about, Liljegren, Dursey, some others, like he's, he's probably right in that world right now on a two-year deal. Yeah. And then there's two in, the, in, in Ottawa and Edmonton, Ryan McLeod and Edmonton, Alex Formanton in Ottawa. Ryan McLeod, basically his two options, if Edmonton can, can make a deal mm-hmm. before Wednesday, which I think is unlikely, then he might be able to get a multi-year deal at like 1.1. If not, he's probably going to have to sign for a one-year deal around 900K. Why do you say that? Well, just because of their cap space situation, right? Um, Why before th- Wednesday, though? Well, that's because they want him on the ice. For for oh. first day of training camp, right? Like he so they want, wouldn't they wouldn't want to sign him to a longer term deal after Wednesday? Well, I, I don't think they I don't think they can risk even him being two hundred and ten thousand dollars more on the cap this year, right? Like they are so I've crunched all the numbers. They're so tight against the cap, Frank. It's kind of ridiculous. It's just more so for cap flexibility for the upcoming season. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, like they they right now they might be able to squeeze a twenty one man roster. And with that, I don't even know if that would have, you know, ultimately their best lineup. They might have to waive a, a one-way contract to, to get that under, right? They're still trying to trade Yesapuliarvi. There's even at this point in September, they're still trying to move him. Yeah, well, I don't discount that, but I I also wonder, Frank, if they're like, you know what, hey, get him in camp. They'll, they'll play him with McLeod and Fogel on a third line and see what if, if anything maybe an injury on another team in preseason right like i'm sure teams think about that right now because I, realistically though i'm with you i think if you're trading pulley and the order fans who love pulley won't like it and i understand it you might get a second round pick for him which you know they'll look and say well hey that's that's not great value right because the second round pick the only the only thing the second round pick helps them for is it gives the uh, gm some trade capital at the deadline Right, because Edmonton should be in buyer mode for the next few trade deadlines. Well, I think you also want to be in a spot where you're accruing cap space in in preparation for the deadline, right? Well, that would help 100% because they've they're started they're one of many 10 teams that might start in LTI. I so you almost can't accrue any space. That's their issue. Who who oh, okay. So it would be Clefbaum on LTIR, right? So and Mike be, Smith. And Mike Smith, right. Yeah, they got six point whatever mail at six point two. So hmm. uh, and then Formington in Ottawa, they've signed all their young guys, right? Uh now he's not in the same category, of course, as Norris or Stutzel or any of those guys, but uh, you know, Alex Formington, are you surprised he hasn't signed uh in Ottawa considering that everybody else has? A little bit, pretty talented player. Um, 32 points last year, knocking on the door of 20 goals and someone that I would think is only going to continue to get better at age 23. I, I viewed the signing of Tyler Mott last week at 1.35, which by the way, riled up the Vancouver fan base. You know, they were saying, well, at 1.35, should we just have brought this player back? He had yeah. made everyone around him better. Um I viewed Mott as insurance for Formington. Hmm. A player with some sandpaper and an ability to, to make some things happen. Now, Formington's one of the few players from that world junior team who hasn't made a public statement. Is there anything at play with that? I don't want to read into that or, or even guess or speculate. I don't think that's yeah. fair. Um, clearly, 
I will say unrelated to Formanton though, like this is coming to a head. The NHL wanted to have this investigation done before training camps opened. That's not going to be possible. Uh, but at some point in the near future, I'd say, you know, 30 to 45 days, there will be the completion of this NHL investigation. And that's concurrently happening at the same time as some other police investigations are happening because London reopened the investigation uh, that my guess is they're going to be sharing information um, mm -hmm. or at least the NHL will know at a certain point what the London investigation has produced. And that'll be part of the process as well. So whoever was involved, and again, I'm not speculating at all. I, I don't know the answer fully. Um, and I, you know, there's a lot that goes into this. So we'll see. Um, but is that related? He, all, all we know is he played on the team. Are, are the Sens one of those teams that's now sitting here saying, why would we give a contract to a player that, could potentially have been involved. I don't know. I maybe that's. I think that's unfair to speculate. Yeah. Now here we are, uh, a few hours away, a few days away, I should say, from the opening of camp. Do you? What are your two most interesting storylines that you will be watching the first week of training camp? Medicals Wednesday on the ice Thursday. Preseason games Saturday. Yes. Um, that's early. I don't know that there's any really burning questions. Um, I don't, I, nothing's really jumping out at me. What do you got? Uh, I'm curious who's going to be the second line center in Colorado. Just okay. be, they're the defending standing cup champs, right? Like they got a really good team. I'm just curious who's going to be their second line center. Who right? do you How think it's going to be? Honestly, I don't know. Like it's you, now you could run Landis Gog and McKinnon if you wanted, right? It's, it's probably a little bit unorthodox maybe uh, for them, but you know, they don't, honestly, I don't, uh, my guess like is Jake, it's Evan Rodriguez. I had a JT get an opportunity there. JT yeah, Comfer is going to yeah, get a chance. Yeah. JT Comfer was the one guy I thought like JT Comfer. I, I really liked his playoffs. That's going to be the battle, I guess is between Rodriguez and Comfer. Yeah. And so he would, that's, that's the interesting. That's a very Comfer. specific position. That is a very NFL like training camp positional battle that I yeah. did not see coming from you. No, well, we don't have a lot of those. You know what I mean? Like if most teams, you could look and say, okay, are there any real significant positions that are, that are up for grabs? And, and I'm talking like a competitive team. Like it's just rare. I mean, Toronto and the goalie situation is interesting. Matt Murray, Ilya Samsonov, yeah. who's the opening yeah. night starter, who gets the bulk of the games. Matt Murray is making, I don't know, almost three times more. He'll clearly get an opportunity, but if I were to be placing a bet and I don't know what kind of odds I would get, my guess would, I'd put my money on Samsonov. To be this, see, I think what they, you know, the cap hit and everything, I think Murray gets opening night. I think there might be some politics in there or just, you know, optics. But then after that, Frank, I think it's wide open. I agree with you. Like I, and, and they might want that. Like a 40-40 split might not be the worst thing for them at all. If, if, if it means both are playing okay, then it's fine, right? They, you don't necessarily, you know, unless you have a Vasilevsky or Shesterkin type of starter, do you need your starter to play 55 games unless they're clearly nope. better than your backup? No, nope, you don't. Um, another positional, not it's actually not positional at all. I'm curious to see the 
the impact of John Tortorella on the Flyers. Oh, yeah. Those comments from a few weeks back when he said there's a problem in our room or there might be, uh, like that captured my attention. Um, Yeah. And what does that mean? And what does he know? And how does he fix it? And it's like, it feels like that training camp for the Flyers is going to be blood sport. (laughs) Man, how many guys have been on speed dial with Cam Atkinson to figure out, you know, how to deal with torts? And will it matter? Yeah. Will it matter at the end of the day? Do the Flyers have enough talent to be competitive? I've seen some early. Heard anything on Ryan Ellis? Not yet. And that's a big question mark for the Flyers. And, you know, I've seen all the preseason predictions. Almost everyone to this point has had them eighth in the Metro. Yeah. Well, and speaking of Colorado, what about Georgia? Your first chance to really be the starter. Like, it's different being the backup than being the starter. Maybe he's ready. His numbers were actually, when he played more frequently, Frank, in New York, he was better than when, you know, Shesterkin took over and then he was just was, you know, playing one every 10, every 10 days or 13 days and stuff like that. So that's another one. He obviously is behind a really good defense core in, in Colorado. So that, that helps for sure. But that's another intriguing storyline for me, because as we all know, you know, we talked about Vegas's goaltending off the hop. If you, if you don't get consistent goaltending in the NHL, it's very difficult to win for on long periods of time. Is there any chance that Pavel Francouz is better? I don't know. I saw people saying, yeah, look at his in the playoffs. I'm like, yeah, look at his numbers. Basically, when he played goal, they outscored the opposition. He had lots of wins, but his save percentage and everything else was terrible. So, yeah, I'm not sold to France. Like, could Francouz be – can he fill the, the gap for two to two weeks to a month? Yeah. Can he, can he be your starter all year long? I'd be very surprised. Opening night, though, you think it's Georgiev? I do. Okay. Yeah. Unless he completely soils the sheets in the preseason. And who is the opening night starter for the Vegas Golden Knights? Now that's a good question. There's no one like Aiden Hill or Logan Thompson. I would bet on Logan Thompson, but I yeah, probably. Yeah. He played there last year, but you know, Aiden Hill, the bigger question is can Aiden Hill still like, it's funny. They got goalie injury issues and they went on and got a goalie who has injury issues. So you know, that, that to me would be the interesting one is how many games does Aiden Hill play before he gets hurt? Well, Aiden Hill is amazing because he's been around for a long, long time, time, but he's only 26. Yeah. He's the same age as Thatcher Demko and has been in the NHL since 2017-18. Yeah. Limited roles, of course, right? But yeah, you're right. He, so. But it's hard to crack the league at that age, and he did it, and he's yeah. stayed in it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm fascinated. I'm pumped. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, lots. I love the fact that, uh, you know, preseason hockey gets going on uh, Saturday and then, you know, you get a few games in, then teams whittle their cuts down. Uh, Nashville and San Jose obviously will do it a lot quicker than everybody else because they uh, fly out on October 1st uh, over to Europe, got the game in Germany and then into the uh, Czech Republic. Are you so, going to go? You should go. Yeah, I'd like to, but I've got, uh, I've, I've got a big uh, event that I, I have on the, uh, Oh, the, the pizza pig out. Play. Yeah. Is that it? Yeah. My pizza pig outs on Friday, the uh, seventh, the big charity thing that we do to, uh, uh, for kids sport to get kids playing. And we only have about uh, 15 slots left. It's awesome. You can go to Jason Gregor, pizza pig com uh, for anybody in the, uh, in the Edmonton area. If you love drive-in movies for kids, uh, the bad guys is the if you movie like that's pizza. playing. I would, seriously, Frank, 
This has become my favorite event because you have these pizzerias that bring new pizza every year, and it's amazing. Some places that I'd never tried before, I hadn't even heard of some of them, and they're awesome. So it's, I, uh, I, I do believe so I can much. I can say I'm a little bit of a pizza connoisseur now over the last three years because uh, I get to try a lot of different pizza. Jason, as I always say, pizza is like sex. Even when it's bad, it's still really good. 100% agree, man. Like even the worst piece of pizza, you're like, yeah, it's all right. Like yeah. <laughs> freezer pizza. You're like, yeah, yeah, I like not this. bad. Yeah. I have learned though, Frank, I will say this warming up your pizza in the microwave compared to doing it either on the stove or now in the it, microwave. Well, some people warm it up because it's easy, what? right? Like, the, like the, the day after I should say not to cook it like the no, day after pizza. you can't do that. I know, but people do, but I'll tell you, have you done it in an air fryer? Game I haven't done it in the air fryer, but I do like to just throw it on a pan in the, in the, on the stove. Yeah. Pan in the stove, but try an air fryer, Frank. I did that. Uh, we had our, we make homemade pizza every Friday and I did it in the air fryer on Saturday. Game changer for reheated mm. pizza nice. for all of our air fryer listeners. Good so, to know. And by the way, Frank, a lot of fans on our Instagram of the lime green pants. Lots of fans of the lime green pants. I they think were you're lying. On the I'm going to need to go and check out the go look, go look at the picture. Like, Frankie's wrong. I love it. Pants I showed my wife and she was like, is Jason wearing a space suit? <laughs> what, what is that? Is uh, he an astronaut? Oh, I wish. I wish. I mean, great. It looked like you were Frank, high as a kite. Awesome. Uh, good week. Uh, we'll start our uh, previews of each division uh, starting next Monday. So we look forward the to that. Time uh, is nigh. Yeah, and we uh, look forward to uh, thank again to the Jets and uh, Rick Bonus for joining us. Have yourselves a great week. We will uh, talk Friday on the eve of preseason hockey and uh, two days of training camp. Thanks for listening to the DFO Rundown with Saravali and Gregor. Keep it locked on dailyfaceoff.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from to never miss an episode. Delivered by DoorDash.